What's Batman's favorite part of a joke? The punchline. What's Spider-Man's favorite brand of rice? Uncle Ben's. There are men who don't think these jokes are funny at all. And then there's Doug Bost and Adam Bernstein. Two men who should have better things to do, but aren't doing them right now. These are two grown-ass men. With special guest grown-ass man, Reed Tucker. Grown-ass man. Close so I can just yeah. hear the vibe of it. You're you guys, pretty good. You guys are like Simon and Garfunkel. We are. Gonna yeah. Harmonize. We yeah. are like Simon. We are, we are Simon Listen, and Garfunkel. Here, because you, they're not of anymore. Scarborough yeah. Fair is really yeah. <laughs> make you cry. Sure. You know, you might want to just come a little bit, do an inch or two that way. See, you can get up close like this. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Reed Tucker. Reed Tucker. Welcome to Grown Ass Man. Thank, thank you so you. much. Great for coming on. No, thank you for here. having me. Reed Tucker is the Go author. Ahead of uh, Slugfest, which is uh, inside the epic 50-year battle between Marvel and DC. And uh, when did it come out? Just uh, in the last month? Yeah, it just came out October 3rd. It's really the only book about the competition between the two companies. Obviously, there have been lots of books about comic book history and about various biographies of people who were involved in the companies, but there's never been a story about the competition between Marvel and DC. And I thought... You know, when I started looking into it, there were not only a lot of interesting stories, but it just seemed like the competition and the way that it affected what the two companies were doing really changed the superhero through the years and led us to kind of where we are today with the superhero movies and the kinds of things that are going on in mainstream pop culture. Right. So this book has shattered so many <laughs> wonderful things about the comic book world that I were my illusions. Like I, like I mean, it starts off like it's it's still like you know with Stan Lee and Carmine, it's like, all right, this isn't so bad. It's still playful, but by the '90s, it's so horrible. Yeah, and I'm just like, oh my god, this is what they were doing all the time is just like trying to destroy each other. There's a scene that happens early on in the book that just kills me, and it's maybe my favorite scene in the whole book, where. Editors at DC gather in a conference room mm. to try and figure out what the hell is so special about these Marvel comics. Yeah. And can you tell us like what happens in that? Yeah, I'm glad you picked that out because I put that in the beginning of the book because to me that's sort of the gist of the whole rivalry. Right. Um, that, you know, in the early 60s, DC was really the top company. They were the blue chip of the industry, whereas Marvel was this... I guess kind of this scrappy underdog that had almost gone out of business a few years earlier and they had one employee, you know, basically Stan Lee and some freelancers. So they were a nothing company. Uh, and then they started launching all their superhero universes, um, you know, their new titles, The Incredible Hulk, Fantastic Four, The X-Men, all those, and really started doing well in sales. And DC still did not take that challenge seriously, no matter how much their sales went up. And so this was probably around the mid-60s starting, and they had a, a series of meetings where the executives at DC, the editors, and some of the writers and artists would get together and they would spread the com Marvel comics out on the, on the conference room table, and they would tack up the covers on the wall, and then they would try to figure out, you know, how are these comics 
coming close to outselling us, and they couldn't understand it. Mm. Um, so it was funny because they each went around and each one had sort of a more clueless than the next observation. Like, well, maybe they, they're using a lot of red on their covers and maybe the kids like red. Or somebody else, I think, said they, they use a lot of words on the cover. and Maybe that's what's um, attracting the readers. But, you know, as many people said in the book, they never bothered to even open it up and read it. And also that they, they thought that the art was kind of childish and that maybe... That's yeah. what kids liked, is that kids looked at the art and said, oh, I could do that, so maybe the yeah. DC artist should draw worse. <laughs> right, right. That's, uh, right. that story came from Jim Shooter, the former editor-in-chief of Marvel, who right. was working at DC at the time, I guess as most people know. But um, yeah, He said he personally heard somebody at DC ordered the artist, artist to quote-unquote draw worse. So whether or not that happened, so I don't no, know. They had no idea what Marvel was doing. They had no idea um, because they had, I guess they can, were still patting themselves on the back for quote-unquote inventing the superhero with Superman. Yeah. They had been riding that way for so long and they just thought that they were the top of the heap and that this was just this, you know, nothing little company that um, was trashy. And I love the difference between the two environments Yeah. because it sounds like working at DC. Oh, I love that quote. Who's it? Barry Windsor Smith says that working at DC in the 70s was like quitting comics. That is just a fantastic it's a great quote. quote. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that that working at DC was like Mad Men or something or even worse, right? It was yeah. just like an insurance company. Yeah. But working at Marvel seems like they didn't have any doors and it was just standing a bunch of freelancers and kids, <laughs> like pot-smoking kids. It just yeah. seems like and as when, different as you could be. Yeah, yeah, and when we interviewed a bunch of people who were part of the bullpen, Doug Mench and Paul Galacy and Chris Claremont, like we've spoken to, the, they were like, yeah, it had that atmosphere to right. it. I love the other thing that you, you know. talk about when you're talking about covers in the book, too, where you talk about how the DC covers pretty much are two people standing and talking to yeah. each other about a problem. So yeah. the problem is in the word balloons of the DC covers, and you really have to read it to figure out what the hell's going on, whereas the Marvel covers were much more dynamic. Yeah, that's so true. You know, if you look at some of the, like, Superman comics from the 50s, for example, you're exactly right. You know, you would see Superman standing in the office of the Daily Planet with Lois Lane saying something to him, and you'd, exactly, you'd have to read the captions to understand what was going on in the story. Whereas a Marvel comic might have Thor, you know, bashing the Hulk across the page with his hammer or something like that, and it's it's pretty clear that, you know, which one would you prefer? Yeah. Uh, you know, I <laughs> right, think one right. of the best examples is, I think most people would know that, I think it's the first first issue of the Justice Society of America that DC put out. And yeah. it's, you know, they finally assembled all these great <laughs> heroes together and the cover is them sitting around a conference room table. Oh, you know, it's amazing. It's, it's like a yeah. board meeting or something, I right. which I found just, just astonishing. Yeah. Yeah, they're really out of touch. But I mean, Marvel in the 50s is kind of, weird too you yeah. know it's like in the 50s i bet if i was a kid then i would have been gravitating to mad magazine more what, what did you read did you read comics when you were growing up i did yeah um in yeah i also could didn't necessarily know the difference between marvel and dc i mean i understood the difference between they published these characters and dc published these but um yeah i read all sorts of things um I love the Dark Knight Returns. I mean, mm. that was the that right. was the comic I think that really got yeah. me really into yeah. comics and and demonstrated what could be done with comics. I loved Batman growing up. Um, I read a lot of you know the Punisher and the Wolverine in yeah. the late '80s. Um, I loved Sandman. I loved some of the things that DC was doing. Vertigo. Loved Swamp Thing. 
Well, that's what's so interesting also in your book, I think, is that you take, you take us through the, the rivalry back and forth as Marvel becomes ascendant and in the 70s kind of takes over and really as the corporations fight there's a lot of infighting there's spies i want to ask you about the spies <laughs> yeah but then you get to a point in the 80s where marvel has won marvel yeah. has kind of crushed yeah. dc and dc keeps making these false starts where they can't really come back and yet dc is the company that creates art in the 80s ronin the dark knight the sandman the uh, swamp thing like right. those the those Alan comics, are, right? Watchmen. Yeah. Like they do something actually in trying to top Marvel. They're successful in actually creating comics that are much more lasting. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, that is one of the things that I always say. You know, a lot of people ask me who's winning this, and obviously Marvel is quote unquote winning when it comes to you know money, finances, sales, all those sorts of things. But I agree with you exactly. What you're saying is, in terms of things that sell perennially every year, th series that people who don't necessarily read comics can read, things that are closer to art, you know, more standalone series. I think DC did a much better job with that. The things we were talking about, Sandman, Swamp Thing, Watchmen, all those that now just sell in trade paperbacks, you know, over and over and right, over again, sure. even 30 years later. Um, and yeah, it, Marvel was basically destroying DC in the month-to-month -month sales starting in the early 70s. and DC almost went out of business in the late 70s when they had the implosion, and they were just sort of, you know, they had their backs broken, and they really had no choice but to try to expand and to do something else, and that something else was to try to publish different kinds of series that they didn't normally publish. There was even a point where they, where Marvel almost bought the DC characters, yeah. which seems impossible to even imagine. I couldn't imagine but it what, either. Well, tell, me, yeah. tell us about how that came about. Yeah, there have been a, apparently a couple times. Um, one time in the 70s that, that uh, Roy Thomas told me about, they, it, Marvel came sniffing around. But then the one that really um, happened was, I think it was around 1984. Again, people, the corporate executives at DC were never very hot on the, the publishing unit because it didn't make that much money for them. What they really cared about with those DC characters was the licensing revenue. Um, and so, you know, somebody who didn't necessarily care about comics or the history of comics would sit up in the office somewhere in Rockefeller Center and be looking through these ledgers and just say, you know, why are we still publishing these comics? We're either losing a lot of money or we're not making that much money. So why don't we just kill the comics line, just reprint all the old stuff we have and right. just make tons and tons of money by, you know, licensing Batman bedsheets, which I guess makes sense if you're, your only goal is to make money. Um, but, you know, Jeanette Kahn, who was, I guess, president and publisher at the time, stepped in and stopped that. Um, but, you know, those thoughts w among the executives kept going on. And I think by, it was 1984, the head of Warner Communications approached Jim Shooter at Marvel and asked, you know, would you be interested in licensing all of our comic characters? Basically, we would hand them over to you. You would publish series with these characters. I think it was six or seven of their core characters. And, you know, we would continue doing the licensing. And we would also help you, Marvel, with your licensing because you're not very good at that. Um, so Marvel considered it. And I think what scuttled the deal was Marvel was at that point then going to have too big of a share of the market. 
Um, the independent comic publisher first was suing them at the time for basically dominating oh, right. the market. Oh, right. They'd be a monopoly. Yeah, be a monopoly. And so Marvel backed off of that deal. But yeah, I agree with you. It would have been really interesting to see what Marvel and their sensibilities would have brought to those DC characters, especially in the 80s. But I was just... One thing that kept coming up for me is that my favorite writers and artists were writing for both. Yeah. Like, well, who, who were some of your favorites? The, I mean, but that's fascinating. Like yeah, they seven, jump back people and forth. People in the 70s, Jerry Conway, yeah. Walt, Sim, how do you say his name? Simonson. Simonson. Simonson, like, yeah. You know, all these people were just going back and forth constantly. And it's like, is there really two separate companies? Because the creators aren't. It's just like the, the corporate things are just running it in such a different way that it's affecting what's going on. But so many of the people are going back and forth constantly. Oh, yeah. I'll work here for a year. And I'll go back to D.C. for a year. You know? And it's kind of strange because the creators are the same people. Who talked to you for the book? Like, who were you able to talk to and who who didn't you talk to? Like, were there people that you tried to talk to and they wouldn't talk to you? Or oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lay it on. The yeah, screen. in a way, that's there, more interesting. Because the book is populated by really interesting characters. Oh, thanks. Some of them sound like people you would never want to have dinner with. <laughs> Except for Vince Coletta. Especially he, Vince Coletta. I was going to say, he was my favorite character. It's unfortunate. Oh, yeah. he, he's dead, but he sounded really, really interesting. Um, no, you know, I talked to probably 75 people, all sorts of people. Um, you know, Jim Shooter, Neil Adams, Paul Levitz, um, all sorts of Jerry Conway. We had Neil Adams on the show, and he just, is, you don't need an interviewer with him like he just no. goes he's just got stories yeah, we did two episodes it's so and he just funny talked. he's great it's funny because right I, I looked through the book and the quotes I used from Neil Adams were some of my favorite quotes because they're just just completely he just doesn't care what he says yeah. and also there's just tons of F-bombs with Neil Adams which I I enjoyed um, I was going to say the people who didn't talk to me there were several people who um, nicely declined which I could understand because no, I think uh, there were, I still found there are a lot of people in the industry and outside the industry who don't think there's a rivalry, or if they do think there's a rivalry, they think it's something that's like petty and gossipy to talk about, which mm. I totally disagree with. And that's what I was saying earlier, is I think it's sort of stupid to say that it doesn't have any effect on the industry or on the history of superheroes or where we're at today with mainstream pop culture. So I think it's, it's definitely something worth discussing. Um, but... As far as people who didn't talk to me, oh, I gotta tell you, the biggest one I couldn't get was Bill Jemis, um, ah. who was the president of Marvel in the early 2000s, and who I right. think made it his mission to really ramp up that feud more than almost anyone since Stan Lee. He and, sounds yeah. like a really what? unpleasant. Yeah, really unpleasant guy. Really, that I've heard but yeah, did, bad stories. What about Stan? You, you couldn't talk to Stan? I did talk to Stan. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I, you know, I love Stan Lee, and... You know, he's got way more energy at whatever he is, 95, than I have now. But, uh, you know, he's he's a, he's a great person to talk to. I take nothing away from him, but I don't know if he's the best person for insight because he himself says that his memory is terrible. He yeah. tends to fall back on kind of his recycled stories. But, um, you know, I mean, I love speaking to him. I love having him in the book. But he, he was he's not the kind of person that's going to shed the most light on the feud. One of the most interesting things to me, just because it's, always been interesting to me is the relationship between Stan Lee and the the other artists that he worked with like Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and you yeah. like the way you talk about the feud between him and 
Kirby, it's like a microcosm for the feud for for fighting in comics in general, for yeah. head fighting. But the thing that always confuses me, and I'm still confused, even after reading your book, what do you think Stan did that pissed off the collaborators that he worked with? Because it, it seems like what everybody, what Jack didn't like and what Ditko didn't like is that he was taking credit. Yeah. He was taking credit for things that they felt like they did. But was that it? Is that is that the is that the whole of it? I mean, in a way, I think it is. Um, it just I think it depends on the person. I mean, Steve Ditko is obviously a very odd personality. It's hard to know what ticks mm. him off or what set him off. But I, I do think it's something along the lines of he felt underappreciated. I think Jack Kirby also felt underappreciated. Um, you know, Mark Evanier, his old assistant, told me that the, really the straw that broke the camel's back for Jack Kirby was the contract that Marvel presented him at the time. He did not think was you know taking into account everything that he had contributed to Marvel. Right. And thought it was just basically a diss on him. So you combine that with Stan Lee being much more of a public persona for Marvel out there, kind of hogging the credit. And I think Jack Kirby felt underappreciated, and then monetarily underappreciated when his contract came along. Uh, there was also the case where they started the Silver Surfer comic and they gave it to John Buscema to draw instead right. of Jack Kirby. Sure. That's just bizarre. That's just bizarre that they would, it's such a diss, yeah. that they would give it to, to Buscema. Yeah, and so you look at, I mean, I think it was just kind of like a car crash of all these little slights that built up and I think the contract was the final straw and he just decided well you know if these guys aren't going to appreciate me i'm going to find somebody who will um so he had that lunch with carmen infantino in california when he was out there doing some animation work and i guess carmen infantino looked at his new gods proposal and really loved it and i guess he felt appreciated and he appreciated the contract that they were giving him and so yeah i mean i think it's all boils down to people felt in the shadow of stanley which therefore made them feel underappreciated but you know just to like this story, especially with Jack and Stan, reminds me of Lee Von Helm and Robbie Robinson and what went on with them. Oh, yeah. You know the band? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, and I was lucky enough to play with Lee Von, so I hung out with him and I heard stories. Lee Von always was claiming that, you know, he should be getting songwriter royalties because, you know, he helped write the weight. The weight is about him and right. his people yeah. that he grew up with. But when they finally separate, Robbie can still write. <laughs> so when I think about what Jack did in the 70s, that doesn't do a thing for me. And even when he comes back to Marvel in the, what's like 77 or something? Does like the Mad Eternals, Bomb and stuff like that. Like, yeah. I'm like... Devil Dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't... It's, it's a question I also think about a lot. And exactly what you guys were saying was when people split up, then you look at what they've done as a solo artist, as yeah. it were. And Jack Kirby, the New God stuff was not necessarily very well received. And as you say, the Devil Dinosaur yeah. and his Captain America stuff back at Marvel was certainly not well received. But at least he was doing things. Whereas, you know, I look at what Stan Lee has accomplished since Jack Kirby left in 1970. Right. You know, where are his new characters? Where are his new stories? And I don't, I, I agree. I don't think he did nothing. I think he added a whole lot as far as editorial direction and writing and just shaping the characters in the universe. But as far as that creative spark, I, you know, I don't know. Because wouldn't you have created something new in 40 years? <laughs> 
Another part of the book that I love is that when Jack Kirby goes over to DC, they give him the Fredo Corleone of uh, Inkers, Vince Coletta. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a good analogy, Fredo. Yeah, right. It's He's a, like this betrayer, you yeah. know, this kind of low-level mobster, right? Who, uh, as a, as an Inker, he erases a lot of the backgrounds. Or just co- right. colors them in with so one color. So he can get color. work done quicker. Yes. Right. But then as a person, too, he's really Machiavellian, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was... It's funny, exactly. He was known not as uh, not as a very good inker, but as a very fast inker, so he got a lot of work in the business. But um, yeah, he did erase a lot of backgrounds. But he... <laughs> I think he... Yeah, you're right. He, he sort of pictured himself as a mini-mobster type of person, I guess. I don't know if he was, but people who worked at DC at the time described some really strange behavior that he owned apparently a fried chicken place in Midtown or had some sort of interest <laughs> right, right, in a right, fried right. chicken place in Midtown so he would invite people over there and he, they'd go down in the basement and he'd be working down in the bottom of this chicken place or um, you know his bookie would come by the office or he'd have these bikini models come by the office he was supposed to be dating this Bond girl I think from Moonraker at the time even though he's married <laughs> and he behind the scenes he didn't he claim to get Carmine Infantino fired? Yeah, I mean, that's what Jerry Conway told me was that was a suspicion because he always hated Carmine, I think, for firing him, him off the New God stuff uh, when he got caught leaking the pages over to Marvel uh, in one of the spying schemes. Mm. So I, I don't know. The people, this is what I was told. I didn't put it in the book because, you know, I, it's all rumor, but the people who were who ran Warner Communications at the time, this guy Steve Ross was supposed to have some shady connections, I think. And so people who worked at DC thought maybe then he also knew people who had shady connections. And so, so that's how he kind of pulled some strings to get Carmine fired. I don't know if that's true. Um, Tell us about the spying. Why? Why would they worry about spying? Yeah, it just depends on the project, I guess. Um, I think there were much more concerns depending on who was in charge and their personality. And from what I've heard, Carmine Infantino was a very bitter, paranoid kind of person. And mm. so the height of that spying paranoia was during his reign. Um, there were, We were just talking about with Jack Kirby when he was going to launch his New God stuff. That was a very high-profile project. He had just left Marvel. People at DC were very paranoid that Marvel was going to find out what he was doing and maybe launch some sort of copycat series. Mm. Um, they were really trying to keep Jack Kirby's stuff under lock and key. And so when people from Marvel were hanging out at DC one day and they saw you know, six months before it was published some pages right. from New Gods hanging up on the wall, you know, they got a little freaked out. And as it turned out, it was, it was Vinnie Coletta who slipped them to Marvel. <laughs> I don't know necessarily as any kind of... <laughs> I, you know, I don't know what he... I think he was just... Maybe he thought they might be interested. I don't know if it was... Is he still alive? No, he's dead. Okay. Yeah. So you can say whatever you want about him. A thing that's really fascinating also about the book, which articulates what happens when both companies just go so headfirst into film and TV. What was the movie we saw? Batman versus Superman? Yeah. <laughs> at the moment we saw it we gave it like a break you mm-hmm. know but like now I'm like oh my god and I had re-seen it some of it on TV Yeah, and I was like oh my god it's so bad well I, yeah I also didn't put this in the book because I couldn't back it up other than one other source but somebody told me that the people in Warner Brothers were terrified of Wonder Woman when before it came out that they had seen it 
they thought it was terrible and they didn't think it was going to be a hit at all. Oh, Which is, if you're looking back and you see the way that they promoted it, there was not huge amounts of promotion leading up to it. And it was only after it came out, it got really good reviews, people started um, seeing it and talking about it, it became a hit and they kind of took a victory lap after the fact, like we knew this all along. But um, person I talked to said that is absolutely not true. They did not believe in it at all. And mm. they were surprised as everyone else when it became a hit. I mean, so, I just, so it's the same, right. really, the same mentality that they've always had, like that they're sort of yeah. known for from, from way back when, is this much more stayed. Yeah. I think now, though, I mean, you guys may disagree, but I just think that they, Marvel has such a firmer grasp on who their characters are, what makes them interesting, and how to tell a good story with those characters, mm. whereas I don't think DC has any idea what to do with with their characters. That's why, you know, you're talking about Batman versus Superman and yeah. that depiction of Superman to me in that film is not Superman at all. I don't think it's the Superman that people necessarily want to see. 100%. It's completely wrong. He's been around for so long and they just, for whatever reason, they're unable to distill the essence of the character in the way that Marvel has done. You know, there's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Spider-Man stories, but at least when I saw Spider-Man Homecoming, that was Spider-Man to me in a mm. nutshell. They had taken all the things that had made him great since the 60s and gave it to me in one character in that one story. Same thing for Captain America, same thing for Iron Man. They're just really good at capturing their characters. They know what to do with it. It's a unified yeah. universe. And the point you make, I think, is interesting in the book that DC doesn't have this unified universe, but the one advantage that that gives them is that they can make five different versions of Batman and they're all equally valid. Right. You can have Lego Batman and you can have Christopher Nolan's back Batman and they're both kind of they can they can both be great, they could both be successful because Batman is by himself in a way. Right. And I think ultimately that's the thing that's going to save them because I think it's pretty clear now that no one, or I shouldn't say no one, but not that many people are in favor of this Zack Snyder vision of their universe, probably including the people at Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. And so it's much easier for them to back off it as they're claiming they're going to do. You know, they're going to give us uh, supposedly a Scorsese-produced Joker movie, and that Joker has nothing to do with the Joker, apparently, that's in the Batman films. And, right. You know, they can give us Lego Batman, and they can give us all these other things, um, these permutations of these characters that people know and, and, and love and don't need to explain to them. Whereas, you know, if you think about Marvel back in their first movie, at least from Marvel Studios, you know, Iron Man back in 2008, if that had failed, that would have been it for them. You know, there's nowhere to go from that. You're not going to do something else with Iron Man. And so, you know, they've had to, they've had a much tougher time with it. And they've had to sort of knock it out of the park um, almost every time to get to where they are today. Whereas, you know, DC, I think they've, they've definitely kind of um, had some missteps. But, you know, now with the success of Wonder Woman, I think they see another way forward and to, to do more one-off films that are in their own tone as opposed to following what Zack Snyder has done. Right. At least they hope. Because but with this with this rivalry that that has been going on for so long, that's the new arena. You're kind of saying it's not so much in the comics anymore. It's much more in the movies. Yeah, I think so. And TV, right? And TV. And TV, just yeah. because there's way more eyeballs there. There's way more money there. And, you know, both of these companies now, DC and Marvel, are controlled by movie studios. And so that's their business, and that's the thing that they care most about. What are you working on next? Do you have another book lined up? I don't, no. I'm just promoting this one. Did you also write for The Post? Yeah, right? I do. Um, I, I write mostly about 
entertainment and films. So okay. um, some TV, some restaurants, some theater, some books, but mostly movies uh-huh. is my beat. So that's um, it's kind of where I'm at. But Well, this is great. So no. Slugfest by Reed Tucker. Uh, go out and buy it at your local bookstore. Yeah. It was a great read. I loved it. No, I thank you guys. Thanks for having me read, on. Read. Yeah, great read, right. read, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, thanks for being on super, our show. Super fun read. No, it was a lot of fun yeah. being here. Thank you.